Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. This evening, we'll bring our collective adventure in the book of Daniel to a close. My prayer is that your adventure in this book never comes to a close. It's been an extraordinary honor to be in a team that has led this particular treasure hunt. We will be waiting in baited anticipation for what your studies reveal. Tonight will clearly be slightly unorthodox for us. We've already covered the entire text of Daniel. And I might note that we treat it with a special detail. Given that, what we hope to accomplish tonight is more personal in nature. And it involves the book of Daniel in the broadest scope and zoomed out view. When we finish this evening, you will have been presented with more than 24 hours of teaching on Daniel. You will have seen more than 300 slides that we created for Daniel. Tonight, we want to set the tiles. Thought you'd like that, Charlie. Set the tiles of what you have learned in the mortar of revelatory application. Here are five subjects that we intend to address this evening in order to help you put what you have learned into perspective. All right, so tonight we have five objectives before us. Objective A, one of the largest benefits from our studies in Daniel may have been the illustration in Daniel's life of the need to wrestle personally with the revelation that you have been given. Objective B, the book of Daniel contributed largely to the perspective of the Newer Testament's authors and the selection of wording such as last days, end times, and end of all things is near. This is because the closing of Heptads A and B, which comprised 483 years. The whole of the Newer Testament is written in the light of the remaining smallest heptad of only seven years that is the dramatic culmination of the ages. Objective C, the placement of Daniel within the Ketuvim emphasizes and communicates urgency in our daily lives to live in the view of the final seven years. Objective D, the overall thesis of Daniel is that a true genetic and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the redemption of Israel through all four empires and until the culmination of the ages. And objective E, we would like to share with you the personal impact that this study had on each of us as individuals. So let's get straight into our first subject tonight. This is objective A. One of the largest benefits from our studies in Daniel may have been the illustration in Daniel's life of the need to wrestle personally with revelation that you have been given. So in light of this, let's revisit a slide from the very beginning of when we started studying Daniel. This slide articulates the Antiquities of the Jews, Book 11. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, and that him being Alexander the Great, if you remember, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, 
he, Alexander the Great, supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day, he called them to him and bade them ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. Alexander the Great granted all they desired. And when they entreated him that he would permit the Jews in Babylon and Media to enjoy their own laws also, he willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. It is astounding that the revelation that Daniel wrestled with so fervently changed the way that his people interacted with the nations that ruled over them for centuries into the future. Come on. Each of us must ask ourselves if we are wrestling with revelation in a manner that will benefit our families all the way into the generations that are to come. So Daniel had obstacles, and you do too. Perhaps you remember this next slide. So you can see on the slide that the Amplified and the NASB inserted the name of the political entity that they believe is the Fourth Empire. We've had to wrestle with that interpretation, and the generations to come will be blessed for it, meaning yeah. they will not be wrong. <laughs> the shallow approach to simply accepting what someone else tells you, and it has to stop. And it has to stop now. Every man must wrestle as Daniel did for greater personal understanding. Amen. So that you will remember this next slide, because this is a persistent problem. It was not a one-time occurrence where an insertion causes us to be unable to see what God is doing. We also dealt with presumptuous pericopes. You guys remember that? The king who exalts himself? The publisher placed a heading in the middle. Somebody say the middle. The middle. Of the text that suggests that the subject matter changed in verse 36. However, after we wrestled with the revelation... It became clear that the Antichrist was described a whole 15 verses earlier. If we had not personally wrestled with the text, we would have missed 29 descriptors or activities of the coming Antichrist. Isn't that astounding? Saints, it is vitally important that each of you engage the text in a personal way so that your future generations will be blessed with your findings. Perhaps you remember how egregious this next slide was. You see that the careless chapter divisions and titles of Daniel are a problem. There should not be a chapter division here at all, as it's one contiguous event. The chapter title that they placed, The End Times, is misleading. After all, if this is all you're looking at, you would think this is the first time in Daniel we have ever discussed the end times because it's the only time that chapter heading appears. If you were going to have a chapter heading at all, it probably should have been the angelic interpretation. So you have to ask, how many people do you imagine are out there that read Daniel and assume that we are not talking about the end times until the 12th chapter just because of the chapter heading? We wrestled with the text, and we discovered one unified message about the end times in Daniel. 
It ranged from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7 to Daniel 8 to Daniel 9 to Daniel 10 to Daniel 11 and then 12. This is the kind of thing that we know will bless generations coming after us. And it's incumbent upon you to take up this kind of wrestling in your personal studies. You see, Daniel did this throughout his lifetime. He wrestled with the text. You guys will remember this slide. What we see in Daniel's life is revelation given, and it's followed by an interpretation every time. Daniel 7, 1 through 14 was a revelation. And then Daniel 7, 15 through 28 was an angelic interpretation. (coughs) Daniel 8 was a visionary revelation. And then Daniel 9 was a message of angelic interpretation. Daniel 10 and 11 are a revelation. And then Daniel 12 is an angelic interpretation. Now, how important was it for Daniel to wrestle through those things? Well, look at the subject matters. The subject matter of Daniel 7 is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire and the little horn that leads it. Huge subjects, right? The subject matter of Daniel 8 and 9 is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire and the small horn that leads it. The subject matter of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire and the curriculum vitae of the one who leads it. Huge subject. And all of this is to bring us to the culmination of the ages in the 70th week and the redemption of Israel. So what we see is Daniel wrestled with understanding the revelation that he had been given and heaven helped him after he wrestled. (laughs) You... You, church, are in the generations that are still being blessed by this wrestling. It's affected you. We are confident that heaven will help you if you take up this cause. Every man must wrestle personally with the text. On the subject of wrestling personally with the text, Genesis 32, verse 25 through 28 is what we're going to read next. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans, and I've overcome. Guys, the divine is something to work out with fear and trembling. You owe your utmost effort to that endeavor. And the dividends, they last for an eternity. Come on. Our hope is that you will wrestle with what you have been given until your name And your function, like Jacob, are transformed entirely. This always, it's a promise. This will always affect the generations that are coming after you. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may follow all the words of this law. What you gain in your lifetime is for your children and your children's children. 
The most important thing that we can impress on you is the need to personally wrestle with the text, and consequently, the, that is the most important thing that you can impress on your children and those coming after you. You hear Isaiah 66, verse 2, from the prophets. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Yeah. And Isaiah knew what it was to wrestle with the things of God. And his work is not for mere entertainment purposes. He was wrestling yeah. with God's word, trembling at it. All revelation, it is meant to be worked out over a lifetime. All revelation must be diligently wrestled through. We're asking you, inviting you to join us in this kind of effort. What men of old have done and the ways in which his word will impact you will affect those that come after us. Let's consider what Psalm 145 verses 4 through 6 say. Because it's not just a cute little slogan for youth groups. <laughs> One generation commends your works to another. They, somebody say they, they, tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Amen. See, when... Revelation is given from one generation to the next, and you meditate on it, it does something in you. Verse 6, they will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. You can ask them. Our wives can attest to the extent to which we have been meditating on Daniel, dreaming about it, talking in our sleep. In this case... Sleepless nights and hours of study have been the best thing for us. It would also benefit you more than the full eight hours of sleep that you believe that you need. <laughs> Let these concepts get down into your soul. Meditate on the word. Chew on it. Man. Until you find things that you never knew were there. Come on. And you know what will happen? You'll become as addicted to this as we are. Amen. Listen to the definition of nobility in Acts 17.11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and accepted it at face value. No! They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day. Every day. To see if what Paul said was true. Come on. Christians, it is time to wrestle. Wrestle with the fact that your diligence in these matters is a reflection of your character, whether you are noble or not. A noble man will show great eagerness to examine the scriptures every day to see if what is being taught is true. When fathers do this and their sons learn to imitate this attitude rather than just parrot and mimic what they have heard, it actually becomes transforming in the entire family for generations. Oh, Listen to how this concept builds in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances 
to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. <laughs> Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, as we bring objective A to a close, you must cultivate an intense wrestling with the text. That also shows the greatest of care as you wrestle. This will serve the generations that are coming after you. Yes. Yeah. We've been stimulated to greater action. And we hope that you will be as well. As we move to Revelation 1, verses 2 and 3, you have to ask yourself if you can describe your study of the word as intense wrestling with the text. But listen to how John speaks in Revelation 1, verse 2. Who testifies to everything he saw? That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. Because the time is near. As a Christian, you will testify to what you see in the word. You will make sure that others hear it. You will encourage them to take it to heart. And... God will bless you for it. Now, the reason that John could say the time was near is because he had wrestled with the revelation given to Daniel. Mm. And then he received an expanded version personally. Wow. So did you catch that last note? John had wrestled with the revelation given to Daniel. That's how he was able to say the time is near. Let's dive into our second topic, objective B. The book of Daniel contributed largely to the perspective of the Newer Testament authors and the selection of wording such as last days, end times, and end of all things is near. This is because of the closing of Heptads A and B, which comprised 483 years. The whole of the Newer Testament is written in the light of the remaining smallest Heptad, of only seven years. Mm. That is the dramatic culmination of all the ages. We're going to review the 70 weeks of years that Adonai forecasted in his redemptive plan for Israel and the world. Amen. You have already heard it, and some of you are beginning to understand it at this point. But when you really begin to see it, I mean, picture and understand what God is communicating, the phrasing in the Newer Testament becomes vividly clear. It's amazing to think that studying the book of Daniel could change the way that you read and understand the Newer Testament, but that is exactly what it does, and we want to share that with you tonight. So we're about to walk back through some familiar slides, but understand this objective is that it will cause you to read the Newer Testament differently than you have been reading it. It will shed a new light on it, and you need to unfog your minds from all, all of the heptad stuff is complicated. Mm -hmm. We've actually presented it in the simplest way, and once you get this, it will change the way that you read every verse that you read in the Newer Testament. That's going to become clear. So to start with, 
70 weeks of years were laid out as God's redemptive plan to redeem Israel. None of them had to be consecutive. The angel tells us the way in which they will be handled. The first period of time that he describes is seven weeks that are seven years long for 49 years. We labeled that Heptad A. The second time period that he describes is Heptad B, which was 62 weeks that are seven years long each for 434 years. And then there was Heptad C, the smallest of his groupings, and the angel is the one that separated them. That was only one week, the final week of human history, and it was seven years long. So you see on our next slide, and remember that as we walked through Daniel 9, we got to see a progression. The angel grouped Heptad A and B, and the angel said at the end of those periods, something would happen. So because the angel grouped A and B, we added them together. 49 years plus 434 years is a total of 483 years. So our next slide, because the angel grouped Heptad A and Heptad B, and because the combination of those two Heptads equal 483 years, we were able to calculate how many days that was. Do you guys remember this? It was 483 years times 12 months times 30 days each, and we got... 173,880 days. Now look at this next slide. So we have uh, on the left side of your screen the Jewish calendar and the Gregorian calendar on the right. Now, 483 days for a 360-day time frame comes out to 173,888 days. From the time that that was given, that would make it fall in the month of Nisan, in the year 32 or 33 A.D. So what do you guys know happened in the month of Nisan, either in 32 or 33 A.D.? That's the triumphal entry. That was the time that Jesus came in. So as you're considering this point, we go to our next slide together. 70 weeks of years, meaning a total of 490 years. When we go from Heptad A to Heptad B, that gives us the time frame until the triumphal entry, the time of the king and the Messiah of Israel walking in. This left only one week of years, Heptad C. One One week of years to be fulfilled in Adonai's redemptive plan. So you're catching that A and B have happened. Only one of the Heptads left. The moment that the triumphal entry occurred. That means that we began the end times, or the last day, just by virtue of being done with 483 years of God's redemptive plan. Additionally, while you're thinking about this, another way to see it is two of three heptads have already passed. We're two-thirds of the way there. Uh, We don't have any cabinet makers in here, and they're the only ones that count in 30 seconds and 60 fourths of an inch. (laughs) But if you're not following so far, let's put it one other way for you. 69 of 70 items that God said would be done and then Israel would be redeemed, 69 of 70 have happened. By any stretch 
that puts whatever is in that last 70th task as the last of things to be done. Does that make sense to you? On this slide, what we learned is that in that final seven-year period, Heptad C, there will be someone who confirms a covenant with Israel that is false security. Isaiah calls it a covenant of death, a time period where Israel relies on their neighbors rather than God and feels secure in the land. In the middle of that agreement, and it was described as 42 months in the Bible, 1,260 days in the Bible, three and a half years in the Bible, he breaks the covenant. He puts an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up the abomination that causes desolation. The end decreed will then be poured out on him, making the way for the redemption of Israel. So what you need to know is the Newer Testament was written after the triumphal entry. You realize that? No books written before the triumphal entry? As much as we're getting a biography of Jesus' life, Luke is not there with him writing down what's happening. It is all written after the heptad A and B have closed. It's written in anticipation of the events in the final heptad, the final seven years. You have to keep that in mind when you're reading it, and it will become clear as we go. Every moment was already in the end times and looking for triggering events that would bring about the final seven years once the triumphal entry happened. All right, you guys still breathing? All right, we're going to give you another one. Take a look at this slide. So again, we're walking through the 70 weeks of years, the 490 total years. We walked you through Heptad A, walked you through Heptad B, and we are centering our focus on the final Heptad C, the final seven years. We know in those final seven years that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant. In the middle of that covenant, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, the Antichrist will break that covenant. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. The end decreed will be poured out on him. We got that from our study in Daniel. Listen to Daniel 12 with that in mind. Daniel 12, 6 through 7. It says, One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long? You get it? How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Now look at the bolded point in verse 7. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Do you hear that time frame again? When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So it's pointing it to a future event. Well, it's interesting because Revelation also says the same language and points it to a future event. The book of Revelation in chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, it lists 42 months as 1260 days you see the math there in bold revelation 12 6 also lists the same 1260 days which is 42 months and revelation 13 5 also mentions the same 42 months so it is clear that the book of revelation is an expansion of what daniel had already given us and that the new testament authors were looking forward to these things which means That every verse in the Newer Testament that is beyond the triumphal 
triumphant entry was written in anticipation of the final seven years of God's redemptive plan for Israel. They were waiting for these things to happen. So at the culmination of the 77s, what exactly is going to be accomplished? What is everyone waiting for? We have this slide that you should recognize. Number one, finished transgression, Pesha, a finishing of willful rebellion. Number two, an end to sin, Chata, an end to wrong or sinful conduct. Number three, atonement for wickedness, Avon, it's atonement for liability or guilt. Number four, everlasting righteousness. Come on. Number five, sealing up vision. Get Number, that, charismatics. Sealing up vision. It's going to be done. Number six, sealing up prophecy. If it was done, Paul never would have said, but you can all prophesy. That's right. And number seven, the anointing of the most holy. Guys, the men who wrote the Newer Testament knew that these things had not happened. One through seven on the screen had not been accomplished, and all the writers of the Newer Testament knew it. They knew that the final week of God's redemptive plan was still to come. It was still a future event. They were writing instructions on how to live in the coming reality in faith before it has arrived. Guys, this is why the apostles asked, when will the kingdom be restored in Acts chapter 1? <laughs> this is why Paul and Barnabas encouraged the people in Acts 14 verse 21. Listen to Acts 14 verse 21 and 22. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Oh. Now the writers of the New Testament and the inhabitants of that period understood from reading Daniel that the final, wood, final week would be the breaking of God's holy people. In other words, that there would be many hardships, but in the close of history, they would receive the kingdom of God. Come on, man. This expectation of difficulty and what it would produce is on every page. They knew they were in the end times and were waiting for the final seven years. Wow, that's great. With that in mind, consider Matthew 24, verse 12 through 21. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on, on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. Jesus came almost 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes desolated the temple. And yet, Jesus referred to the same event 
that we have read about in Daniel and told us that it would be in the future yet still. Mm. He also said, let the reader, i.e. the reader of Daniel's whole prophecy, understand and then referred us to a future time frame. Now more than that, this event would be one that was unequaled from the beginning of the world until Jesus' day and never to be equaled again. As you can hear the expectancy of the final seven years and the characteristics of it, the things that would accompany it, and everything that is written in the Newer Testament, they knew they were in the end times. They were in Heptad C, awaiting for it, but did not know when the final seven years of the end times would begin, when it would click, when it would start and initiate. Yeah. You get that? They knew that it was coming. They knew that it would happen. Nothing about it would be a surprise to anyone that is listening to them. But they had no idea when it would begin. Look at this in Mark 13, beginning in verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's that phrase from the Maccabees, letting us know that Jesus was aware of it and chose to use it because it was not fulfilled in the Hasmonean period. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out of it. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter. Do you hear the uncertainty of the timing of when it will take place? Because those will be days of distress, distress unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again, you should take a deep breath and let that settle on you. That means that it dwarfs the Holocaust. That means that it dwarfs Titus in AD 70. That means that it dwarfs Antiochus. That means that it dwarfs anything Haman did in the book of Esther. It means it dwarfs what Amalek did in the Torah. Unequaled from creation Till then and never to be equaled again. I don't know of a historical event in my, my knowledge that dwarfs World War II. You can see that Mark also records Jesus speaking of this desolation as a future event. Even though Mark, Matthew, and Jesus were all aware of the history that occurred in the Hasmonean period. It is also notable that the phrase, flee to the mountains is a reoccurring refrain in the books of the Maccabees. And it refers to the time of Antiochus. And yet, Jesus, Matthew, and Mark still point us to a future event. Putting some of this together, the Newer Testament is presented in the light of the end times spoken through Daniel. Every person in every generation was living in expectancy of the final seven years from the triumphal entry forward. They knew that they were, in fact, in the end times, 
but did not know when the final seven years of the end times would begin. That will shape the way that you read everything in the Newer Testament. Listen to yet another parallel account in Luke. Luke 21, 17 through 24. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. If you see Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city gate, city, get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. I want to interject here for a second. Verse 22 says, this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of, what's that next phrase? All. All that has been written. Not some portion of what was written. All. All of the recorded canon. You find me a historical event that fulfills all that was written in the canon. And then I'll sit and talk with you about a historical fulfillment. But since you can't, perhaps we should just take Luke for his words. That he recorded Jesus saying, The events that we are speaking of fulfill all, not some, all of what has been written in the past. Verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Listen to this next part. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Not only is Jerusalem not done being trampled on, the time of the Gentile reign has not been fulfilled or completed. This ought to be fairly obvious, but we're not even trying. We don't want to prove that point to you again. What we're talking about is the perspective from which the Newer Testament is written. And if Matthew's record wasn't enough for you, then perhaps Mark's was. If not, then praise God, we also have Luke's record. Luke even says that the time being described would be the fulfillment of all that is written. Obviously, again, no historical event meets these requirements to date, or there would be no debate about it. We wouldn't even be talking about it. What is clear is that the triumphal entry completes Heptads A and B. The Newer Testament writers understood this very, very well. They lived with the daily anticipation of the final seven years because they were already in the end times. They were in between B and C. Justin's going to give you an analogy in a minute because we live in the Gulf South. But it's really important that you get this. When the triumphal entry happened, they understood after the fact that heptads A and B were, com- were completed. And so they lived in daily. Somebody say that word. Daily. Daily anticipation of the final seven years of the redemptive history. But they didn't know when it would happen. So that creates a sense of urgency throughout the Newer Testament. And we're going to keep talking to you about that tonight. Church, this is similar to knowing that a hurricane is brewing. You will not be surprised by its arrival because you were aware that it is coming. However, 
You have no idea when it will make landfall. It could take its time. You have no idea. This concept so permeates, so permeates the Newer Testament that it is impossible to miss once you see it. (laughs) Consider that the Apostle Paul is expounding on the text of Daniel when he wrote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So now that you have familiarized yourselves with Daniel, it ought to be crystal clear that Paul is expounding on the things that Daniel foretold. He even uses the exact phrasing that we found in Daniel 8 by mentioning a rebellion that causes desolation. The whole of the Newer Testament is addressing the present truth that we are in fact in the end times and have been from the moment that the triumphal entry occurred. We even know the specific triggering events of the final seven years, but also do not know. We don't know when those triggering events will take place. So at this point, we have Jesus, we have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, we have Paul, and all of these men lived with the expectancy of the final seven years as a fact that would take place in their future. However, none of them knew when the final seven years would begin. Because it involves a covenant of false peace with Israel and the rise of the Antichrist. The Father has to allow that to take place and did not specify when it would occur. Only the length of that final heptad, that final period. It's important that you get that point. We know how long the period is. We know details of the period. But no one was told when the period would begin. Okay? Even Jesus said that the Father had reserved that for himself. Now, we can debate all day long about whether Jesus knows it now, and that's not a debate I want to get into. (laughs) The point is is that the New Testament writers knew that it was coming, knew that they were in the end times, and lived with the imminent expectancy that it could occur at any moment. But it it hadn't. Now, this next passage is extremely pertinent to our subject matter. You need to listen to the intense emphasis of the epistle of 1 John. Now, the reason why it's significant is because it was written between 90 and 95 AD, which was two and a half centuries past Antiochus and two and a half decades past Titus. So that makes it extremely significant in history. So listen to 1 John 2, verse 18. 
Dear children, this is the last hour. Wow. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. Yes. This is how we know it is the last hour. So how on earth can you be in the last hour for 1,927 years? <laughs> That's the date of John's writing to today. Well, that is not as difficult as you might have previously thought. Since Adonai has laid out 490 years of redemptive history, and 483 of those years have already been fulfilled, then it is accurate to say that we are in the last hour. Since every generation is living in the expectancy of the final seven years, and it could occur at any time. Guys, we referenced this earlier, but we're going to do just one more analogy because it's Texas. So you've loaded your shotgun. You've racked your shotgun. You've aimed your shotgun right at the target. 69 of 70 steps have been completed. And now it is pointing at the target. It's your last couple minutes. When will he pull the trigger? You don't know when the trigger's going to be pulled, but it definitely changes the way you live up to the moment that it's pulled. That is the position that the New Testament authors are writing from. So in this next slide, you're going to hear some rapid samplings of this. So we've summarized and taken little snippets. Jude 17 through 19 says, But you, dear friends, recall the predictions foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, In the end times there will come scoffers, propelled by their own ungodly desires. 19 goes on to say these people are divisive. He's instructing the church based upon these prophecies. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Acts 2, 15 through 17. It's only 9 in the morning. You remember they're accused of being drunk? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, James 5, 1 through 3, you have hoarded wealth in these last days. Romans 13, 11 through 12. Understanding the present time, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. What I mean, brothers, is the time is short. Romans 12, 12. Revelation 12, 12. Because the devil has gone down to you. Hear this. He is filled with fury Because he knows that his time is short. Even the devil knows it. (laughs) Look, let's summarize that slide while you're staring at it. Two of the Lord's own brothers, I mean children of Mary, sorry Catholics, (laughs) Peter, Luke, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, and John, all consistently emphasize that we are in the last days. Now, there's a common misconception. These men were mistaken in thinking that this would unfold in their lifetimes. So it either had to unfold in their lifetimes or they were just wrong. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. I've heard it all over this room. 
This has led to the advent of errant positions like preterism. And even those that are not preterists fail to understand the Newer Testament in this light. The truth is that these men were not mistaken at all. As usual, the mistake has been in our understanding. The placement of Daniel within the Ketuvim is the answer to the dilemma of how everyone can believe they are living in the last days and not be mistaken in every successive generation. We're going to move on to that in Objective C. That's why we laid out our objectives for you from the beginning. Our topic as we move to Objective C, this will come, become clear to you. The placement of Daniel within the Ketuvim emphasizes and communicates urgency in our daily lives in view of the final seven years in every generation after the triumphal entry. Let's work back through what the Ketuvim is. Justin will help us, and I pray that this gets clearer and clearer to you because this is revelatory. All right, so you guys have seen this slide many, many, many times. <laughs> the truth is I don't think we look at it enough. This, this slide is kind of like the power of the Peshat. You skip over it because it's Peshat, but it tells us some amazing things, like the book of Daniel being in the writings. Now, I'm saying that, but there have been many times studying the book of Daniel where I had to remind myself of that. How many of you have disagreed with the Jewish placement of the book? Yeah, uh, all of us at some point. And certainly the Gideons did. They threw away the whole Older <laughs> Testament except Daniel. So the point of this slide is that the book of Daniel, it contains more chapters of prophecy than anything else, but is considered a book within the writings. Let's see what the writings does. Take a look at our next slide together. So at the bottom of your screen, you have Ketuvim, or writings, and you rediscover that... The purpose of the Ketuvim is to teach how to live a faithful life in your historical context. Yeah. That being said, the reason that Daniel is in the writings, the Ketuvim, is that he demonstrates how to live a faithful life while living under the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. What is more than that is that his book tells us the attitude oh, come on. that all generations must maintain under every empire. Oh, as we see it in Daniel and his companions' lives and in oh, their example. Yeah, yeah. This has become even more evident since three empires have passed and we're only waiting on the arrival of the fourth empire. That would mean that every man in every generation following the triumphal entry is being instructed to live with imminent expectation of the tribulation and the salvation of Israel. Uh, I want you to pause on this for just a second. Picture Hananiah, Mishael, picture Daniel, pi picture our Jewish brothers there. They see beautiful revelatory things. They understand the order of the empires. And then they're almost thrown in a fiery furnace. So it's all done, right? And then we're thrown into a lion's den. So it's all done, right? No, no. Daniel is a successive series of you must live with a hope of redemption that is coming. And you will have to go through hell to get there. But what we know now about the Newer Testament's writings 
is that everything after the triumphal entry, they knew that they were about to hit part 70 and had been through 69. And the, the Ketuvim teach you how to maintain faith in your historical setting. So the writers are not wrong to emphasize it as within their lifetimes. Because that's how every generation is supposed oh, to live. And yeah. it's why Daniel is put in the Ketuvim oh, and not merely a prophecy. <laughs> okay, so we're going to say it one more time so that you guys get it before we move on. It's not that any of the men that wrote the Newer Testament were wrong in their expectations. But rather, that they were conveying that all men in every generation must live with this same sense of urgency because the thief is already at the door. Yeah. It's just a matter of when that initiation point occurs for that final Heptad seat. So take a look at this next slide that we won't review in full tonight, but I want you to remember that the men in the Newer Testament knew the Greek Empire, the Third Kingdom, was behind them, and they lived in the urgent expectation of the arrival of the Fourth Unnamed Empire that would be led by the Antichrist. And they also wrote in a way to encourage us to do the same. You guys should remember this next slide. This was my favorite out of all of the ones that we came up with. <laughs> you can see, the men in the New Testament knew that lesser transition kingdoms, like the Seleucids, were behind them, which meant that they lived in urgent expectancy of the arrival of the fourth unnamed empire that would be led by the Antichrist. Can you see that urgency that would come from understanding these transitions? Yeah. They also wrote in a way that encouraged us and all generations to do the same. Yeah. See, that's, that's an interesting point. If they were mistaken, then they've also led every generation after them into the same mistake. I understand the frustration with end times guessing. I get it. We'll stop guessing about the end times and live within the constraints of what the scripture says. Amen. We do not know when the final seven years will occur, but we know what occurs when it does. And we're to live in that position. That's why Daniel is in the writings. Now, let's show you another slide that we won't go through again because we've taught it many times. The men in the Newer Testament knew what the curriculum vitae of the Antichrist would look like. That's why John could say many have come and yet one is coming. They lived in the urgent expectation of the arrival of the fourth unnamed empire that would be led by the Antichrist. And all of their writings are urging you to live in exactly the same way. Would you like to see some of their writings? Yeah. Yeah. This is Revelation 13, 1 through 8. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a what? Leopard. A leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, bear and a mouth like that of a lion. lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. I'm going to interrupt Justin again. What is John doing? He's trying to conceptualize what he is seeing based on what he already knows has happened. That's because he knew that two heptads were behind him. And this is a marker of the final seven years to come. 
Verse 3 says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Mm. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. So if you're following with us, you'll notice that this is exactly what Daniel wrote. It's essentially the same thing. You see the attributes of Greece. You see the attributes of Medo-Persia. And you see the attributes of Babylonia in this beast. And John is writing about it as coming in the future. You see that the whole world was filled with wonder. We have learned that this is the whole biblical world, not the entire world as we know it. We also see in this passage that there are small little horn blasphemies coming from this beast. And it has the power to wage war and conquer the saints. Where have you heard that before? In Daniel 12. You see the entire corpus of the Newer Testament, just like this passage, is encouraging men in every generation following the triumphal entry to anticipate the arrival of the fourth beastly empire with its blasphemous leader. Somebody say anticipate. Anticipate. The Newer Testament writers were anticipating it and teaching you to anticipate it within your lifetime. The point is not that it occurs within your lifetime. The point is it's the right way to live throughout your lifetime. Now, like all books within the writings, Daniel communicated to them the way in which we faithfully live in expectation of these events. That's incredible. He He recorded the prophecies and he showed them by his life. The apostles themselves were not mistaken. They were applying Daniel as a book within the writings correctly. All men should live in the expectation of the tribulation and salvation of God's people. All men. This is true in every generation following the triumphal entry. We must all, say all, All. we must all live as if these things are going to occur within our lifetimes. Because that's what the writers of the Bible did too. Because they actually could happen in our lifetimes. And even if they don't, this is how we live. And it is an encouragement to us to live in the same biblical way as the writings project. Okay, now we need to circle back to Acts 14, 21 and read it again, and you're going to get a revelation. We're going to do the same as Jin Pasaki, except we're going to bring more clarity instead of more confusion. (laughs) Here's the clarity. You guys ready for it? Yeah. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. All men. Somebody say, all men. All men. All men must live in the expectation of the coming hardships that are necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. This urgent anticipation of Antichrist, it's actually an encouragement for us. Because we know 
that the period to come, guys, it's only seven years long. And it's got unequal tribulation attached to it. But that unequal tribulation is only in the final half of that seven-year period. When it's done, the kingdom of God is the only reality that will be left on the entire See, See, that's the only way that it's an encouraging thing to be told that it's going to be hard as hell. (laughs) And to live with the expectancy that it's going to be as hard as hell is because you know what it will produce. And the writings are teaching you to live that way in every generation because every generation is going to have its own tribulations. But there is a final seven-year period that brings it all to an end. That is why Daniel is in the writings. Perhaps we should look at another scripture in the writings with this thought in mind. You guys want to read Psalm 119, verse 49? Yes. Are you ready for it? Yes. I want you to listen intently to this. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Come on. That's a good word. That's so good. My comfort in my suffering is this, that your promise preserves my life. Now, as we bring this objective to a closing point, let's consider two things that are true and the tension that exists between them. You guys mind a little tension? We're about to put some tension on the line. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 29-31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. What? From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is, currently is, passing away. The apostle was not mistaken in his statement that the time is short. The time is short because the finger is on the trigger of that shotgun. And it could go off at any moment. Mm -hmm. Living like this means that you could never be surprised or unprepared for the events that you already know are coming, church, because the word declares it. Again, someone will say, but it's been 2,000 years, man, 2,000 years. Well, we're glad that you said that. We want to take a look at another equally true statement that should be paired with the time is short. When we say the time is short, think of parables like virgins pledged to be married. They know that the wedding time is fast upon them, but they don't know when it's going to occur, just that it is. And the whole parable is to create the sense of urgency to live every day as if today was the wedding day. So Paul says the time is short. Let's see what Peter says. And as we do, I'm just going to give it away up front. They're not in contradiction with each other. It's a tension between two things that are true. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. (laughs) Peter was a good pastor. 
I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. See, even in 66 or 67 AD, which is when this letter is written, people were already saying that the last days were lasting too long. <laughs> and therefore, the whole concept is illegitimate. But look at Peter's exhortation. It begins in verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. See, in the time of Noah, the righteous lived in urgent expectation of the flood. But the wicked were surprised by the flood. That's where Peter starts. Justin's going to help us with where he continues, and it gets more better for you Louisiana folks. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Man, it is the same today. The righteous live in the urgent expectation of the coming tribulation and salvation to follow, but the wicked will be surprised by it. So, why is it all taking so long? Why? Why? If we are in the last days, if they were in the last days, why is it taking so long? Well, Peter's going to give us an answer. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, every day that goes by, while we are eagerly anticipating the final seven years, someone is also being saved from the judgment to come. Come on, man. This is God's will. We are to live as if the event is going to happen in our lifetime, because it might. But also every lifetime that goes by is a display of our Father's patience because he doesn't want people to perish. Amen. Come on, church. Amen. Guys, every single climactic event in biblical history has two truths associated with it. This first, is a golden gem and you're going to want to hear it. <laughs> first truth. The righteous were expecting it and the righteous were living with the knowledge that the time was short. Second truth. The wicked were surprised by it. And they were living as if it would never happen. Yeah. <laughs> and then it did. Yeah. <laughs> Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh-oh. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Man. Friends, we have an obligation to live in the expectancy of the final seven years. We know the thief is coming, even if we do not know 
the exact moment of his arrival. Yeah. So as Peyton picks up in verse 11, picture yourself sitting downstairs. You have your flashlight and your Texas shotgun. <laughs> because you know that a thief is coming. You know how long he plans to stay in your house. You know what he's going to do in your house when he gets there. The thing that you do not know is what time he is going to arrive. What kind of anticipation would that create? What kind of urgency would that create? And until the thief shows up, no matter how many generations it takes, the faithful would stand in that kind of anticipation. This is how the Newer Testament presents presents the close of history. It's almost like being fully awake. Listen to verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a good question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Amen. As you look forward... What? Forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Come on now. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Are you getting the impression that everything in the Newer Testament is written in this light? Yeah. Good. We hope that you can see that the writers of the New Testament were not mistaken about the Lord's coming in their lifetimes. But rather, they lived in, within the principle of the Ketuvim as faithful men who lived in eager expectation, and they also taught others to do the same. Now, as our last scripture on this objective, look at how the book of Revelation opens. Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Sounds familiar after reading Daniel. Ever since the triumphal entry, you guys tracking with us? Yeah. There remains only one heptat. Somebody say one heptat. One heptat. That's all that remains in God's plan for redemption. That heptat is only a seven-year time frame. Seven years. Thanks. The time is short. The final seven years will soon be upon us. In light of the larger redemptive plan, we are on the edge of the fulfillment of these things. So we want to take these things to heart and practice where we started. Wrestle with that in your daily living. We're going to begin to move to our fourth objective, which was D. The overall thesis of Daniel is that a true, genetic, and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the redemption of Israel through all of the four empires yeah. until the very culmination of the ages. Amen. It was kind of nice of us to lay out our objectives in the opening three minutes, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We're not being sly with you. We're telling you some things that we've gleaned from this book. And before it's all over, I'm going to start off by telling you all the things that I did not know before we started. For now, since our topic, our, our objective D is... 
the thesis of Daniel. Like, what was the point of reading everything in Daniel? I think the underlying statement is that a true genetic and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for redemption of Israel, regardless of what empire they're under. One of my favorite quotes, it's written in my Bible, you may remember from this slide. This is Nachmanides. He's writing 1,300 years after Heptad's A and B have closed. But he says, precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect us and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. See, throughout history, Israel's history, there have been many plots for their annihilation. Perhaps one of the greatest examples of Adonai's love for Israel is their continued existence. Remember that the law contains a prophecy. Somebody say prophecy. Prophecy. It comes out of the mouth of Moses, and it's about Israel, and it occurs during the Exodus. All right, so it's in Exodus 15, 13. In your unfailing love, unfailing love, church, you will will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Whose strength? The law communicates the selection of Israel and the continued protection of Israel. This is because they are Adonai's chosen nation. The promises made to Israel do not depend upon Israel, but rather they depend on the unfailing love and redemption of Adonai. So you may remember that we also taught you that Kings and Chronicles record Solomon predicting Israel's future trouble and their future redemption as well. So check out this next slide from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 24. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back wow. and give praise to your name, that's confidence right there, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their ancestors. So at the dedication of the temple, Solomon was already talking about the breaking of God's people. And he was already talking about the fact that they would return and be redeemed because they are Israel, God's chosen people. Look at how his prayer continues. Second Chronicles 6, picking up in verse 36. When they sinned against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, We have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken... And pray towards the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, and towards the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Clearly, Solomon prayed for Israel's redemption, regardless of the empire that would oppress them, and regardless of the cause for the oppression. Right. 
so you guys should remember this next amazing slide. There are a lot of prayers in the Bible, and sometimes out of context, what someone is saying in the Word may not be correct. In this case, Solomon's prayer is answered by Adonai himself. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Before we hit 15 and 16, do you remember going through Daniel 9 and hearing Daniel do this? Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. If it is not entirely clear to you that Adonai loves, that his eyes and his heart have promised to redeem Israel and the land and the location, that it is all at one and the same to him, that the book of Daniel should have made this clear to you, that this is a certainty as Messiah is coming. This is what it will produce. This next slide, I hope, is one that made an impact on you. I've never seen it anywhere. No. It, it is pure. I mean, we created all of these. And, and it's because the concepts were created in us as we read Daniel. When you look at the organization of the book of Daniel, those first six chapters help you define what is true genetic and spiritual Israel. In fact, in the first chapter, you see the distinctiveness of faithful Jews in Babylon. In the second chapter, you see them interpreting Babylonian king's dreams. In the third chapter, they are facing the fiery furnace and doing it in faith. In the fourth chapter, you see that they are bringing Gentiles to salvation. In the fifth chapter, you see that they are transitioning between oppressive empires, but they recognize that it's God's hand doing it and embrace the transition. In the sixth chapter... You see them again facing the lions of tribulations. What does it look like to be a true genetic and spiritual Jew? It looks like the first six chapters of Daniel. Okay, What does this mean? This means that the prophecies in 7, 8, 9, 10 through 12, they are about the redemption of Israel. They are the... The empires that will oppress Israel, and yet Israel will be faithful through it. They are the events of what it takes in 490 years, though not consecutive, or 70 weeks, though not consecutive, to bring about the redemption of genetic and faithful spiritual Jews. The overall thesis of Daniel, quite simply, is that a true genetic and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the, de- for the redemption of Israel through all four empires and right up to the culmination of the ages. Amen. We're anxious to get to some of our own impressions that the book of Daniel had on us. But first, we want to do a very straightforward, quick, 
sixth scripture string on the redemption of Israel. Because we don't want to miss the thesis of the book. It's so easy to maintain a living hope for the redemption of Israel when you have passages as, as these. Deuteronomy 4, 30 through 31. When you are in distress, when you are in distress, and all these things have happened to you, then in, la- in later days you will return Amen. to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. This is another prophecy from Moses within the Torah. It says in later days you will return to the Lord. Look, Israel will always maintain the hope of their redemption through Gentile oppression. This is the story of Daniel And as you can see, it is the story of the entire Bible. Now, if all you just heard was blah, 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 and more blah, you need to get born again. You don't understand your Bible. Okay? This is foundational to the entire Bible. And you you must not be like the neighbor's kid at at somebody's birthday party going, when is it my turn to get presents? This this book (laughs) is about the redemption of... Of Israel. And it was always a mystery that you could be included in that. And it's a glorious mystery and I celebrate it. But you cannot lose sight of the actual target of the book. (laughs) It's hard to beat Jeremiah 33 verses 23 through 26. When we're talking about the redemption of Israel. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected The two kingdoms he chose. So they despise my people. And no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. You guys ready to hear God's response? If I have not made my covenant with day and night. And established the laws of heaven and earth. Then I will reject the descendants of Jacob. And David my servant. And will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Amen. Guys, this is a selection from the chapters that form the book of consolation within Jeremiah that we studied extensively together. Notice that Adonai will never reject his people. But he will... Restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. That's right. This is the message of the book of Daniel. And as you can see clearly, it's the message of the entire Bible that's That's holding in your hand. Amen. Listen to Psalm 130, verses 5 through 8. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the mornings. Two times. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Under every oppressive Gentile empire, in every generation... Israel is the object of Adonai's unfailing love. 
And his personal promise to Israel is full redemption. Come on. Yeah. This is the message of Daniel. And as you can see, it's the message of the rest of the Bible as well. Yeah. So as we pick up together in Acts 5, verse 29, I want you to know in advance that it, as we pick up in this place in the book of Acts, Messiah has already been crucified. We've already had the Jewish leadership reject Jesus in a large part. This is at the point in time that the normative Christian society says, well, then they rejected Jesus and now we're in the church age. So here, That's what the load, apostles the say during this time, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Done. End of the chapter. Nope. No. Nope. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness to the Gentiles. No! Repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. To deny these truths is to grieve the Holy Spirit. He is a witness of the purpose and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection and ascension to the right hand of Messiah as a Jewish man is the first fruits and foreshadowing of what Adonai will do with the whole nation. Messiah is the Savior of Israel first. It was a mystery that we could participate in that plan. Israel will receive repentance and be forgiven for all sin. This is the message of Daniel and the rest of the scripture at large. Can we go ahead and read Romans 11? Now, I know you've heard it many times, but you've never heard Eric's amplified version. (laughs) I do not want you to be dumb as flesh. I'm glad you understood that. (laughs) I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Come on. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. Come on. Paul is quoting, not just from Zechariah, but from the book of Consolation in Jeremiah here, so that it would be impossible for us to miss. No matter what has happened, or what does happen with Israel until the end of time, the covenant of Adonai with his people is that he will take away their sins and that all Israel will be saved. Listen to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation 7, 3 through 8. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all 
the tribes of Norway. No. The Mormons. No. The tribes of Israel. Yes. Judah, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. What you need to know about this is that in Revelation, every Israeli tribe is represented before the throne of God. And in Revelation, you see a multitude of peoples around the throne of God. But Israel is the only nation that is explicitly stated to be sealed for redemption at the end of days. That is because Israel is the only nation that is projected to be at the redemption. A true genetic and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the redemption of Israel throughout history, all the way to the end of Heptad Sea, all the way to the culmination of the ages. Look, in uh, our remaining 31 minutes, uh, we want to cover our last objective for the evening. You remember that was objective E. We want to share with you the personal impact that this study has had on each of us as individuals. I, I personally can't tell you quite what it means to me to get to do these foundation meetings. I've been doing them for 30 years without a break. I did them when it was just my wife and children sitting in a living room. It's not the joy of teaching. That's, that's beautiful, but it's not that. It's what it does in me to be able to study the word on this level. Oh, okay? And I can confidently tell you, if none of you were here, I would continue to do the exact same thing because I always have. In fact, I don't think that I would be a good pastor if I didn't. I have a slide for you. It's Eric's personal impact from the book of Daniel. I think that the best way to describe the impact that Daniel had on me is to read you Daniel 2.23. I, me, myself, I, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me, you hear the individuality in that? Wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we, Asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. My very favorite thing about studying Daniel, and it's the first book that I was ever tasked with teaching, all the way back in 1993. I was zero years old at that time, but Jen was already 18. (laughs) Was the book of Daniel. And uh, I can tell you that in this setting... Dealing with brothers that have ideas about the text, revelations about the text, uh, some of them valid and some of them horrifically bad. And having to wrestle through that because I love and respect them and believe God speaks to them caused me to see things, caused us to see things that I never would have seen before. I'd like to just give you a few things that I learned, and this is... This is not an exhaustive list. Number one, the Lord revealed more to us in a team than he has ever revealed to me as an individual about any book. Bigger, more massive changes 
than I've ever had before. It's a little bit humbling. Like, I want to go back and get rid of some old notes. But it's a part of our growth process. You know, I did not know that the gold image of chapter 3 was probably an obelisk. I didn't understand its significance. I had no idea. That was mind-blowing to me. And I would not have understood that if we were not internally hashing out these details and going home and reading and getting out of bed in the middle of the night and writing things down and coming back to talk about them. I did not know that chapter 7 and 8 were speaking about the same empire. Every other year that I've read Daniel, I thought chapter 7 was about the fourth empire and chapter 8 was about the third empire. This year, in this setting, I realized that there's a continuity between them and it's far more than foreshadowing. That changed. That changes the way that I read the whole book, just that one thing. I did not know that chapter 8 was a vision that was interpreted in chapter 9. And it's as clear, it's in the Peshat. But for 30 years, I did not know that and have never taught it before because I couldn't. I did not know that chapter 8, I'm sorry, I did not know and appreciate the extent of the unified message that goes from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7 to Daniel 8 to Daniel 9. And the way that it culminates in chapters 10, 11, and 12, which completes the entire series of visions and is the resurrection of the dead. I've always compartmentalized and segmented those. Sometimes I put them in pairs, but I didn't understand the big picture. And this year, in a team, God revealed that. And I can't tell you how excited I am. And it'll change the way forever that my family line reads this book. And I suspect yours too. I can't imagine not having the opportunity to study on this level. And I'm just going to be honest. If nobody ever reviews what you're studying, you will never study on this level. You have to bring other people into it. It has to be presented and laid out there. What I took from the book of Daniel is that, and it was a blessing to me. Our desire is to share our genuine internal wrestlings with the Word of God with you. I honestly think that's what makes these nights special, don't you? This next slide is me. Judah's personal impact from the book of Daniel. The first element that really began to set on, in on me as we interacted with the word more and more and more. The book of Daniel sets the example regarding what real wrestling in the word looks like. Saints, you know me. I grew up in this environment. I know what it is to memorize a teaching because you need to memorize it. Not even for the sake of presentation, but because you're going to have to use it the next step. I know what it is to read the word on a regular basis. A daily basis, multiple times a day, for periods, even hours at a time. It's not the same thing as wrestling with it like Daniel did. And it's in the Ketuvim, I think you heard that earlier. It is the way that we are to live out our daily lives wrestling with the Word. I was challenged, and I want you to feel it in the same way that I am. 
a life of repentance and humility and searching back and forth in the Word along with others who do the same cultivated something inside of them. You see, in the first six chapters, over and over again, God is putting to the test the convictions that should be resulting from the Word that they're clinging to. Yeah. Chapter 1 initiated that immediately. Come on. These scared little boys got to decide whether or not they would stand on God's Word. Well, they had to wrestle with it first. Saints, if you're hearing what we're saying about the days that we live in, what we're preparing for, what we're creating, the need for us to do more than read a daily devotional but agonize over the Word until it forms convictions in us must grow. Amen. There's not a man in here that cannot, must not take from the example that has been set out in this writings. I've been challenged by that. Daniel 2, 3, and 5 all demonstrate that a response must follow a genuine revelation. Here's what we mean by that, or I mean by that. Daniel 7, 28, 8, 27, and pretty much all of Daniel 10 give you insight into the agony that Daniel is in as a result of the revelation that he received. So when we talk about wrestling with the Word, guys, that's step one. I began to interact with the fact that I am reading my Bible on a daily basis. I'm a spirit-filled Christian. I am your pastor, and I'm not agonizing over it in the way that this book of the Bible says a daily Christian life should be. Then what began to result from that is I realized what it produced was revelation and convictions that allowed him to stand with a man like Belshazzar and speak accurately. Although he was not a king, although he was not of noble appointment, although he was in exile and a lot like most of us, he had something. Real revelation always produces action inside of us and it will be agonizing. The insight into these things had a cost. It was agonizing and it was a far cry from the typical charismatic presentation of hearing from God. Man, there are a few guys that you can still hear. Guys that talk about what it was like to receive a prophetic anointing. We know what it is to wrestle with the text and realize that God is telling you something is coming and it wasn't just cheerful. It caused you to double down on the wrestling in the text. Think about the prophets. As Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Or for another example, the Apostle Paul who got to see a vision of Jesus. Who in the room would like to see a vision of Jesus? Yeah. Hear a voice audible from heaven and a light, rather. Yeah. What did he speak to him when that happened? Pastor in the room got it. The immediate result of his interaction with God caused him to have to wrestle with the voice and the word that hit him. It caused him to agonize over what was given and it produced a life of suffering according to the vision. I'm beginning to think that there are some things God is not speaking to us yet because we haven't wrestled in his word long enough to obtain convictions that are able to walk out the revelation he wants to give you. That he wants to give me because this is Judah's life. What is happening in our bodies, he's tuning us up, showing us what it will take to be able to receive the revelation and then agonize the agony that results from it, just like Jeremiah, just like Ezekiel, and just like the Apostle Paul. Then thirdly, I think you heard on a Sunday a little while back, the concept that there are no silent years and our lives rocked my world. I knew about those things. I could quote several of the passages that we taught on. But you could see in my own eyes... 
Something was different in realizing how much God has ordained right now. See, the reality is we have a simple choice as whether or not we will seek Him, wrestle with Him, agonize the actual cost of the revelation to be able to know what is written in the book. Daniel 10 verse 12 puts that very, very clearly. The man was laboring to gain understanding and there's heavenly warfare that results when men do things like that. And the kind of heavenly warfare that doesn't look like just picking up your Bible in the morning for a little while and thinking about it the next time you go to church or somebody asked you what you were reading. It is an agonizing over these things. But it produced a people that had supernatural understanding, supernatural convictions for the future, and were able, like Daniel, to prepare generations ahead. Amen. Anybody in the room feel like you're called to ministry? Yes. This is what we need. We need to agonize and work through these things in a way where we understand what is written so that we can gift that to others, and it is not a light process. So my personal impact from the book of Daniel... We came across a verse that might have been small to, to some, but for me, this, this changed a lot of things that I view about what is ahead of us, what is ahead of me, personally. And that's Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 through 3. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and ashes. It dawned on me in our study that Daniel understood that the temple would be made desolate again. It was in desolation while he was praying, but it would be made desolate again. So why pray, Daniel? Why begin to petition the God of heaven? Why begin to fast? Why, do you, why go in sackcloth and ashes, Daniel? Why pray? The answer that we learned together and that, re, that rocked me is because Daniel was partnering with God to establishing his will on earth. Amen. That Daniel got the opportunity to partner in what God had already determined to do and that became Daniel's routine, to daily find joy in doing what God was doing on earth and partnering with God on what he wanted to do. I've had a tremendous blessing to meditate on the facts that we have learned. That the power of the holy people, Israel, will be broken. That is going to happen. And that hits me like a ton of bricks. I meditated on the fact that the Antichrist will be Middle Eastern and confirm a covenant with Israel, and he will break that. It's going to happen. I've meditated on the fact that there will be unparalleled distress in the Middle East. There will be an end to sacrifice and an abomination that causes desolation. It is going to happen. But the thing that rocks me the most is that these things are still in the future. So why pray, church? Why pray? Why pray as if these things can change? Why go to a swan? Why go to that place on the yellow map? Why minister in Turkey? Why minister in Israel? Because we get to partner in God's will 
through the process. Passage like 2 Peter 3.12 became more alive to me than at any time in my life. As you look forward to the day of God, as you look forward to that day and you speed its coming, what does it mean to speed its coming? It means you actively participate in it in hopes that you are, are speeding it to come faster. I have heard it said and I've thought it many times that why are we fighting a battle that's going to lose anyway? And I'm realizing that that's not true at all. That God has given us the incredible gift of of the privilege to partner in His will. That in fact, perhaps, like Esther was told, we were born for such a time as this. That these are the days that, that God has determined for me and for us that we should not waste any time but take every moment to partner in His will simply because we get to. That we can actually partake in the joy like Jesus had when he said, my food is to do the will of God. Church, the times coming upon that region are going to be unparalleled and never to be equaled again. And I have the privilege. You have the privilege. We have the privilege to get to participate and be righteous through it. That, That has rocked me in an incredible fashion. And so now, why pray? Well, it's because I have the unique privilege that many of my friends never got to join with my father on what he accomplishes, what he wants to accomplish on this earth. Whether it's hellacious or not, it doesn't matter. For the joy set before me, I get to do it. I get the chance to be a part of it. Isn't it incredible how the book of Daniel has impacted each and every one of us collectively? Unbelievable. I can honestly say that studying this book has been the most impactful study of a book of my entire life up to this point. And what I know, and that I know that you guys know as well, is that this is honestly just starting. Because our revelation about what it takes to wrestle with the Word of God is growing on a weekly basis. Amen. Amen. <laughs> got a slide for you, and I wanted to hit some highlights and land somewhere. But I wanted to start with a week-by-week week for you. So, Daniel introduction. There it is. It astounded me how many things that Daniel was able to accomplish in his 80s. <laughs> like, seriously, in his 80s. He was in his 80s when he confronted King Belshazzar. He was in his 80s when he received the vision of the 70 weeks. He was in his 80s when he was thrown into the lion's den. Guys, can you believe that? Wow. He was in his 80s when he received the revelations of Daniel 10 through 12. What about Daniel chapter 1? When you are pressed between allegiance to either the king of your locality or to the king of the universe, you learned to bet your balls on. on what the word says. And if you don't, or if you can't, then you don't have any anyway. You don't have any balls to bet. What about Daniel 2? There is indeed a people on earth that can hear from God. And there is also a people on the earth that God chooses to live among. And the incredible part about that is that we get to participate in those blessings. Daniel 3, while Nebuchadnezzar was not demanding worship of himself, the image of gold 
that was set up was at the very least constituting worship of his gods. Likely because the image was an obelisk that included Nebuchadnezzar's achievements, his divine right to rule, and detailed the time and the associations of worship of the Babylonian deities in association with their zodiac, which also we showed an image that you'll remember, and it looks just like the one that's in the Vatican today. Yeah. I got a huge kick out of that. Yeah. Daniel 4. We asked the Father. No, we cried out to the Father together for the same grace that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. The same power to raise our eyes toward heaven. The same power to think in restored terms yes. together. Yeah. The same power to praise the Most High God. The same power to honor him who lives forever. And the power to bring his name glory with the lives that he's given us. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was given. What about Daniel 5? It's one of my favorites. Mini, mini, Tekel Parson. Or Perez. We learn that these three items spoke a message to Belshazzar. That his reign was unsuccessful and about to end. That was the first major revelation. But then we stacked a revelation on top of that. We learned that Perez was a wordplay intended to indicate that the Persians were coming to take over. Then we stacked another revelation on that. We learned that the values of many, Tekel and Parson, related to three father and son pairs of kings that we had in Babylon. Each pair significantly decreasing in value after the previous one. The way that the Holy Spirit enlightened our eyes and showed us and stacked revelations on top of each other through our studies of Daniel was absolutely unprecedented. I know you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Daniel 6. The nation of Israel was instructed to pray toward the land, toward the city, toward the temple that God's name dwelt in. Daniel exercised believing faith in the realities that the word of God declares. When he was doing this, the land was in occupation. The city, it was destroyed. The temple at that time was a pile of rubble. Yet none of those present circumstances affected Daniel's trust in the realities that he saw and that he read in the Word of God. Yeah. And we realized that, we studied it, and we realized our depth of conviction must grow Amen. for the coming trials that are coming to us. Daniel 7, we learn that Messiah is like a son of man or the Baranash. He approaches the Ancient of Days, which is the visible image of the invisible deity. Essentially that Jesus in human likeness approaches the deity that can only be visualized in Jesus. There is only one literal throne and it's occupied by Jesus. The same Jesus who is like the son of man yeah. and who also is the Ancient of Days. Daniel 8. The Bible is literally replete with prophecies that had near-time historical fulfillment, but also a full realization that's going to happen in future time. This is because biblical prophecy is establishing patterns of fulfillment. Now that being said, Antiochus Epiphanes was a near-time fulfillment, but he falls short of the full fulfillment that will be found in the Antichrist that will emerge from the Middle East. And that revelation 
formed the way that we looked at the prophecies that we studied in Daniel. Daniel 9, we're going to come back to because it's my favorite. Daniel 10 through 11.20. The time period between Malachi and Matthew is said to be silent years. But we discovered together this was not true. There are no silent years. Those years were spoken in advance. We have at least 14 prophecies in Daniel regarding this silent years time frame. Daniel himself forecasted it with the kind of clarity that even secular scholars at the top of their class today are still scratching their heads over how Daniel could do it. And they try to put Daniel and date it way farther because they just don't believe the accuracy with which he prophesied. Daniel eleven twenty one through 12. While most pericopes and most historians by far lead the reader to believe that the text is not speaking of the Antichrist until verse 36, we read Daniel with the illusion of the first time. When we did that, the Lord opened up our eyes to the revelation that the Antichrist was being spoken of much earlier, i.e. chapter 11, verse 21. And then we were able to pull out 48 attributes that we would not have seen if the Lord hadn't have opened up our eyes. I want to finish in chapter 9 of Daniel. We were not able to point to a time outlined in Scripture when Daniel sinned. We couldn't even find one definable instance. But Daniel knew his own state. He knew the state of his people when compared to the holiness of God. And he walked in a humble, repentant spirit that made him highly esteemed by God. In fact, we got to study about men like Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and John the Apostle. Men who were called things like highly esteemed, one whom Jesus loved, or even called friends of God. I want to leave you with this truth. I know most of you in this room desperately want this. The fact is is that God definitely wants your strict obedience. But even more than that, God Almighty, Adonai, wants your friendship. He wants to partner with you. He wants to be friends with you. And He confides in those who walk in friendship with Him that displays a searching of His Scripture, a humble, repentant attitude, and a desire to partner with Him in His will on the earth. And you guys can have that. Is it okay if I share the impact that the book of Daniel had on me? Oh yeah. It's a little surreal to close this book of the Bible, but you know the reality is it's just beginning. Because what you do when you walk out of these doors, now knowing what you know, makes all the difference. I wasn't able to put it down in a couple words, so I highlighted some of the things I learned from every chapter of the book of Daniel. In chapter 1, I learned that Adonai will strengthen you to live faithfully even when you're exiled. In chapter 2, Adonai reveals mysteries when you wrestle for answers like your life depended on it. Because the truth is, it does. Chapter 3. For those who will not bow to this world, the fires of affliction, well, they become your fires of affirmation. 
If it's only comfort around you and your life's easy, then you're not walking right. In chapter 4, God is able to turn the most stubborn of hearts to Him. I am like Nebuchadnezzar and will lift my eyes to heaven and bless the Most High. You remember the result? His sanity was restored to him. Chapter 5. Don't be like Belshazzar. (laughs) Chapter (laughs) 6. There's more depth in that uh, four-letter sentence than I I could go into right now. Chapter 6. When you are humble before Adonai, he will humble roaring lions before you. Chapter 7 and 8. I grew in my anticipation of the ministry that the Lord has called me and my brothers to in the region that the little or small horn will rise out of. This conviction was driven deep into my soul as we studied the book of Daniel. And now that I know that the small or little horn is coming out of the region of the Middle East and can prove it through the scripture, it's only inspired me to devote my life to that region because they do not know. So why might you believe God would give us this revelation now? Because we need to know what we're going to tell them and how they can prepare as they eagerly await Heptad C beginning. Chapter 9. If we are humble and pray, earnestly seeking Him as we repent and call out to Him, He will answer from heaven. And in chapter 10, I learned that I can stand even when I'm trembling. In fact, I would say the moments I'm trembling and the most scared about the things that God has called me to are when He speaks to me from heaven and He lays His hand on my shoulder and He gives me strength. I would much rather be trembling and strengthened by Adonai than try to cultivate that in my own, own walk and in my own heart. Chapter 11. The Antichrist spirit is a spirit of apostasy. This is a love for the world and not a love for the word. And my prayer for all of us in this room and for my own personal walk is I might love the word more than anything else that this world has to offer. And finally, in chapter 12, at the end times, Michael will arise to protect his people And those who are wise will be purified, refined, and made spotless. And Israel, the apple of God's eye, will be restored to the way God had always intended it to be. So we have just a little less less than two minutes before we hand it over to the pastors and we close uh, our treasure hunt in Daniel. Sound booth, if it's not too much trouble, can you go back to the five objectives? It should be your second slide. I wanted to tell y'all while you're looking at this, because some of you came in late and didn't hear us lay that out. This particular study in Daniel has cost us each an awful lot more than any previous book. And uh, everything from... 12 weeks of kidney stones to car crashes to uh, unforeseeable demonic work interactions. But what we realize is it also gave us more than any other study (laughs) that we've ever had. 
And there is a real secret to that. When something costs you something, it's worth nothing to you. When something costs you a great deal, it's worth everything to you and the way that you advocate for it and the way that you stand on it is different because of it. So I would tell my brothers and sisters, don't shy away from the cost. Each of us would gladly do it all over again. And we intend to. And to put it into perspective, just typing each week is about 30 hours. Just, just the typing. That's not the other study that goes into it. And that's not collectively 30 hours. That's what one person typing takes. The more than 300 slides are particularly difficult for us. We all hate electronics. Okay? You will be given notes via the website or email from us that are hundreds, our, our Jeremiah study was almost 826 pages of notes. Of course, that cost you very little. That cost you attendance. It cost us a lot. So, of course, it means more to us. Mm-hmm. We're asking you to get some skin in the game with us and bring personal revelation to the table that you have wrestled with. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know about an obelisk if I wasn't arguing with Peyton. Okay? That's all we have to say about that. I want to pick up on the same theme that Pastor Eric just mentioned to you. The last section when these men were presenting what they have learned and what they've gleaned is absolutely incredible. I want to be like Eric. I want to learn and wrestle with the need for my brothers to be able to increase my own quote-unquote personal revelation. Man, I want to be like Judah. I want to wrestle with, like he has, the idea that wrestling with the Word is seen in the convictions of your daily life. (laughs) God, I want to be like Justin. I want to wrestle with the truth that he shared, that he's been wrestling with, that partnering with God to establish his will on earth means more than anything. I want to be like Nick. I want to learn that friendship with God and intimacy with him means everything. I want to be like Peyton. To be able to see ministry through the lens of these revelations that have been wrought here. These men shared with you what they've been wrestling with and what the wrestling did. The revelations were incredible, but what they shared as a culmination was what they have been wrestling with. You and I get to be blessed, inspired, encouraged, but what they cannot do for us is wrestle with the word. They are wrestling with the word and is doing something in them. The same result will be as we personally wrestle with the word. Eric can't wrestle with the word for me. He can do it on my behalf, but he can't wrestle for the word with the word for me. I have to go and do that. I have one passage of scripture before I turn it over to Pastor Matt. I'd like to go back to 1 Peter 1 and we'll do 10 through 13. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to take liberty because I'm one of your pastors, and I can. 
concerning this salvation and this revelation that these men before you, these prophets, these teachers and pastors and anointed men of God, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they've searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, LCM. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you through the book of Daniel, by the preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, can you agree that these men have been touched of the Holy Spirit and they've been sent from heaven? As a matter of fact, even angels long to look into these things. You've been given revelation that literally angels long to look into. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, actually, in the version that I have right here, it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Can't thank these men enough for what they've done. Except that I may be able to. More than kind words to them, I think the way that I intend to share my thanksgiving with them is to go personally wrestle with these things with my family. To make my own slide, not for a presentation before the church, but so that my family and I have what we've wrestled with and what we gleaned from this book. Therefore, I'm going to prepare my minds for action. I'm going to prepare the minds of my family for action. We're going to wrestle with this, and more than me saying thanks, because that would lose its luster pretty quickly. I'm going to wrestle with this scripture in a new way because I've seen an example of how to do it. And I won't allow their wrestling to replace the wrestling that I must do. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Stand on your feet, say. As you're hearing the call to commitment, to wrestle with the word and wrestle with this revelation on a daily basis, have the hope that in the same way that Jacob wrestled with God and his name was changed, so will yours. Your character, your reputation, your body of work will be transformed because you wrestled with the revelation. It'll be imparted in you in a deep conviction and it will naturally flow out of you. It'll direct every bit of your strength and how to rightly do what pleases God and you won't have to toil in paralysis or impetuousness to find out what God's will is. Are you guys going to commit to wrestle with the Word? Yes. Let's pray. Mighty King of heaven and earth, Lord, we thank you for this family, this body, this congregation that you have given us, and this word that you have put before us with such labor. 
Thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with it from this day forth. Thank you for the opportunity for what it will do inside of us, the hope of further transformation. I pray that you awaken us in the middle of the night to search these things out. I pray that you stir us in the busyness of our own deeds to find out the deeper things that are within this revelation. So that we may obtain the same mysteries of your word as these men did, so that we can go proclaim the same word that Daniel did. We thank you, Lord, for leading us into your righteousness and giving us these gems from the depths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.